In this lesson, we are going to get into our very first offense, which is homicide. Now, homicide itself can be both lawful and unlawful. And our primary focus in this regard would be in relation to unlawful homicide. If I am to give you a, a few examples on what lawful homicide might be, for instance, where there are executioners in place for uh, certain punishments to be dealt with, that is lawful homicide. Where in the case of self-defense, which in itself is a defense itself, where all elements of murder or, for example, homicide might have been accomplished still. The defense is applicable, the person will be acquitted, and therefore it's not considered as unlawful killing of a human being. The defense of self-defense also extends to, for instance, where someone is trying to kill uh, another and you intervene in order to protect that other person. Now, having considered this initial notion, our primary focus rests in relation to unlawful homicide. Now, in most LLB syllabuses, homicide itself is divided into murder and manslaughter. So, in order to begin our lesson proper, we'll look at one of the most famous, or should I say infamous, of crimes, the most heinous of crimes, in fact, which is murder. Now, murder itself can be considered as the unlawful killing of a human being with the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. What does this mean? Now, it's important to note that even in relation to manslaughter, the actus reus or the physical act itself remains the same with both murder and manslaughter. Thus, in relation to murder, the actus reus, which you can consider in relation to Maloney, a case which is available in your case summaries, which I urge you to have a look at, refers to the unlawful killing of a human being. Moreover, if we consider the latter notion, or the mens rea, the mental element, which can be seen in Vickers, also a case available in your case summaries, is the killing must have occurred with the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. Now, we see in Saunders that grievous bodily harm has been equated to even serious harm. You might be thinking why exactly this is important and why we must consider the wording itself to be properly constituted. The reason being is, from an examination standpoint, most problem questions posed to you would not deal with the exact definitions of many crimes. For instance, in the case of murder, you have to prove that D, or the defendant, unlawfully killed the victim with the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. Now, the wording itself in a question scenario might specify that the defendant intended serious harm. Now, in a position such as this, it is always advisable to cite a case such as Saunders, as I have mentioned here, in order to justify serious harm as having the same effect or considered by court to have the same effect as grievous bodily harm. Now, before we move on to our next section, which is manslaughter in relation to homicide, it must be noted that murder itself has a component of voluntary manslaughter, which is the actus reus. Now, considering manslaughter as a lesser degree of a crime than murder is simply to denote that the mental element was not in place. What is not in dispute is the unlawful killing of a human being. As in, in relation to murder or manslaughter, there has been an unlawful killing of a human being. As in, the actus reus component has been fulfilled. 
The only difference is that the mens rea element in relation to murder and voluntary as well as involuntary manslaughter is not complete. As in the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm cannot be proven beyond reasonable doubt. Having said that, we'll have a look at manslaughter. Now the very first area that we are going to look at is voluntary manslaughter. Now the difference as I mentioned a moment ago is that the actus reus is the same as murder. However, the mens rea or the mental element of the crime has not been fulfilled. If you recall in our introduction, I mentioned that two particular defenses apply in relation to murder, which is loss of self-control and diminished responsibility. If a person pleads either loss of control or diminished responsibility for a charge of murder, and if he is successful in this defense, his charge will be mitigated to voluntary manslaughter by way of either loss of control or diminished responsibility. Now it is worthwhile noting that murder, as in homicide itself, is primarily a common law offence, as in there being no definition in statute. Both loss of control and diminished responsibility in relation to voluntary manslaughter can actually be found under the Coroners and Justice Act of 2009, as well as the Homicide Act of 1957. So I urge you to have a look at both of these acts in relation to the definitions themselves. It's a very good example of where such a heinous crime itself has been defined within statute, which is within legislature. So first of all, let's have a look at what elements must be fulfilled in order for a defendant to successfully plead loss of control. There are several qualifying triggers. Firstly, there must have been fear of serious violence intended towards the defendant. Secondly, there must have been a sense of being seriously wronged or there might be a situation where these two are combined and act as triggers themselves. Now you might be concerned as to, for instance, the second point where if he had a sense of being seriously wronged, that it pretty much equates to a anger trigger, as in his anger itself triggered him to act in the way that he did. But however, this also, you must remember, is beyond reasonable doubt, as in the burden of proof. Since if the person, if the defendant himself is, for instance, a habitually angry person, if he is known to have fits of rage, this particular trigger might not have occurred and therefore the defense might fail. Moreover, there are a few limitations as well to these qualifying triggers. For instance, if the defendant relies on the uh, fear of violence, it cannot be held to be a valid defense if that violence was created by the defendant himself. Moreover, if the defendant committed an act due to sexual infidelity, for instance, it cannot be held. And also, if the defendant incited the situation, if he was part and parcel of creating the atmosphere and the situation in play, then he cannot be considered to be seriously wronged and therefore, again, the defense cannot be held. Now, it's worthwhile noting that loss of self-control is an evolutionary derivative of provocation, which was a defense prior to it. Now, in provocation, it must be noted that uh, the sex as well as the age of the defendant was not taken into consideration. But in relation to loss of self-control, these are also factors that permit, that are permitted rather by court when the defense is uh, being called upon by the defendant. Now, as you can clearly see, while voluntary manslaughter itself is a mitigatory offense to that of murder, it cannot be accomplished, as in the mens rea element cannot be mitigated so simply, 
unless the qualifying triggers are achieved and the limitations are also overtaken by the defendant. The limitations themselves suggest that it's quite subjective in nature at times since, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, if the defendant himself portrays certain habitual characteristics, he might not be able to rely on the defense itself. Now, conversely, if a defendant were to plead diminished responsibility, there would be no need for qualifying triggers as that which is needed in the case of loss of self-control. Now, it's interesting to note that in relation to diminished responsibility, it's a defense that can be raised by the defendant as well as one that can be raised conversely by the prosecution as well. What do I mean by this? Now, on the one hand, when the defendant raises uh, the defense of diminished responsibility when he has been charged with murder, the burden of proof itself is on a balance of probability. Now, this is quite a contrast to that of beyond reasonable doubt being the burden of proof generally in relation to criminal matters. On the other hand, if the defendant has raised an insanity defense, which, if you recall the introduction, would mean that an acquittal, a qualified acquittal, which would reprimand the defendant into psychiatric care, the prosecution can bring up diminished responsibility. In essence, what the prosecution will try to or attempt to do is to commit the defendant to a charge of manslaughter or voluntary manslaughter rather than seeing him acquitted with a mandatory psychiatric evaluation. Now, in this latter case, the burden of proof is beyond reasonable doubt and it falls squarely on the prosecution. Now, the point to note here is where a defense is being raised by the defendant, he has to prove on a balance of probabilities, whereas the prosecution invariably abide by uh, the burden of proof being beyond reasonable doubt. Now, if we consider diminished responsibility in context with insanity, as I mentioned earlier, there is somewhat of a difference. For instance, insanity, the defendant did not know what he was doing. He was not in control whatsoever. But in relation to diminished responsibility, the defendant knew what he was doing, but couldn't restrain himself. So he couldn't control himself, although he was aware of his actions and perhaps even the consequences as well. Whereas insanity, it was completely out of his control and he was unaware that he was doing such an act in the first place. Now, unlike voluntary manslaughter, Involuntary manslaughter does not have any component of the mens rea as seen in murder, for instance, as the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. There are three main aspects that we must consider in relation to involuntary manslaughter. It can be committed by way of gross negligence. Now, this is in relation to mostly medical negligence cases, ones which you will come across uh, when you go into the second or third years in relation to the law of tort. Now, once you have a look at Adomarco and Levin, you'll get a better understanding of how exactly this crime can be committed. Gross negligence usually occurs when there is a duty of care by one party, presumably the defendant, in relation to the victim. There was a breach and it caused the death of the victim. Conversely, you have recklessness as can be seen in LIDA, also available in your case summaries. Interestingly, constructive involuntary manslaughter deals with situations where there's an unlawful, dangerous situation created, which evidently caused the death of the victim. Now, cases like Watson and Church illustrate clearly on what requirements must be fulfilled in order for a defendant to be 
found guilty in relation to involuntary manslaughter. That was quite a succinct overview of homicide in relation to both murder and voluntary as well as involuntary manslaughter. Next, we will have a look at simple non-fatal offences against a person or common assault.